0: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Pimper, host of the Public Policy Channel. And today I am pleased to welcome Paul Renfro, who is the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State from Oxford University Press. Paul, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So uh, before we turn our attention and talk in in some detail about the book itself, I wonder if you might tell our listeners just a little bit about who you are and how it is that you arrived at this particular project.
1: Sure. Um, So I am currently an assistant professor of history at Florida State University, and I grew up in the 80s in this moment that I am seeking to kind of excavate and explore in the book. And I... I mean, this is the only sort of regime um, under which I, or regime that I know, right? This is what I grew up under—the idea that strangers are dangerous, that you must kind of avoid them at all costs, and they perhaps will do certain dreadful things to you. So this is all that I've ever known. And as I entered grad school, I began to think about you know certain cases that had elicited a certain amount of media attention and public attention and kind of political, um, gained political import. And I started to wonder kind of how that whole regime came to be. So that's how I arrived at my dissertation project, which is the basis for this book. And I did my dissertation um, or my, my graduate work at the University of Iowa in the Department of History there.
0: Excellent. So as you've just alluded to, this, this book traces what you call the creation of a child safety regime. Um, I want to talk about where that comes from. But before we do that, I wonder if you might first just tell us, what is that? What is that comprised of? What are the the features of that regime? Uh, and then if you can lay that out a little bit for us, then we can circle back and talk a little bit about where that comes from.
1: Sure. So first and foremost, it's the kind of logic that underpins it. Um, you know, the the notion, pr- precisely what I was just talking about, the notion that children are threatened by strangers, particularly. So that is kind of the cultural foundation or the intellectual foundation for this regime, and. There are other components to it, which are kind of uh, administered by the state and administered by uh, kind of private vendors. Uh, And I kind of discussed that a bit in the sixth chapter, which we might discuss. Um, So there is this kind of carceral component to it. Obviously, kind of anything that is undertaken with the purpose or the express purpose of protecting particular children from particular threats, and I saw a lot of the the kind of imagery of endangered childhood and the rhetoric of endangered childhood undergirding a lot of the policy moves being undertaken specifically at the federal level, uh, what with uh, you know the the Jacob Wetterling Act and other sorts of measures that led to the creation of and expansion of sex offender registries. Particularly, there's a kind of logic of child protection embedded in them. And that's a a core feature of the child safety regime. And also, I talk a lot about these different products that private sector uh, entities created uh, in the 80s and into the 90s, uh, whether it's kind of the, the fingerprinting Programs that, um, that that cropped up around the country in the, the mid-80s, uh, or you know, the the child on the milk carton, that kind of iconic image, or the little leaflets that circulated nationwide, you know, the Have You Seen Me leaflets, um, or little child safety leashes that we often see children on. Uh, all of these things, I argue, kind of comprise this child safety regime. And in kind of its very existence, it shores up and, you know, narratives about missing children, narratives about child exploitation, the very notion that children go missing at an alarming rate, and they are snatched by strangers, you know, all of this serves to kind of reinforce these very systems and, and the very kind of um products and and um and logics that that animate this entire thing
0: so let's let's see if we can't sort of go backwards in time a little bit and and try to make sense of of where this this came from and why it is that it emerged at the particular time that it did so so all of this sort of 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 state apparatus and cultural apparatus you talk about emerging from a a moral panic or a sex panic and and the the moment that you uh, uh begin with is is the disappearance of uh, uh a young uh boy in New York uh called Eton Potts in 1979. Uh, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that case and why you think it's important.
1: Right. Um so I think you know I talk a bit about the antecedents to this panic. Obviously there's a kind of panic over sexual psychopaths in the fifties or really from the 1930s through the fifties. You can kind of find, um, antecedents in Indian captivity narratives. There are these deeper roots to this story, but the Aton Pates case is, is different. Um, or I think it, it served to kind of inaugurate a new moment and a large, uh, part of that is because of its uh, timing, right? The fact that it came at the tail end of a lot of social and cultural movements um, that most certainly kind of disrupted uh, people's understandings of of the family, of of race, um, of certain kind of structures that had been firmly entrenched. And this is also a moment of profound economic uncertainty, not just nationwide, but specifically in New York. And that kind of economic uncertainty also breeds a certain kind of uh, fear about crime. And that, you know, New York obviously is this uh, site undergoing tremendous um, neoliberal economic restructuring at this precise moment. And so, you know, the Pates case seemed to kind of deliver all of the turmoil and all the tumult that um, New York was experiencing, it it brought it to this small uh, neighborhood that was, it's a far cry from what it looks like today. Soho, um, you know, it's not this kind of uh, hyper-gentrified or it wasn't this kind of hyper-gentrified site. It was very much a kind of bohemian, small, tight-knit neighborhood. And so this very much served to kind of bring all of the worst of, uh, or what people thought was the worst of New York City, kind of fear city, um, as you know, some people um, proclaimed it um, or called it. Uh, so that very much kind of served as this moment of disjuncture, um, of a fracture for, for New York, for Soho. And I think another really important component of that case is the imagery associated with it, the fact that Eitan Pates was incredibly photogenic, telegenic, and that was obviously captured by his professional photographer father, Stanley Pates, who had this cache of really alluring images of his son that could be deployed by by news media and obviously, this is the the media capital of the world, perhaps. And so, the the news media in the area, obviously, the New York Times with this tremendous uh, reach, um, gloms onto the story, and it becomes, um, I argue, this first real kind of individual case that gestures to this larger social problem. Whereas you had, you know, just a few years prior, um, cases like. Uh, John Wayne Gacy and the Candyman killings in, in the Houston area, these didn't necessarily focus on one child and and gesture to a larger social problem, one that would be kind of captured under the umbrella of missing children. And that's precisely what happened with the Aton Pates case. And he becomes this kind of emblem of a larger issue and other cases become kind of subsumed under uh, or become kind of conjoined with, with his case. And they kind of gesture to a larger problem that people need to be concerned about because ostensibly this is happening everywhere. And it's something that could happen to your child.
0: And, and so what is it that, that, I mean, this becomes one of those, those, those cases that, uh, uh, enshrines this idea that, Gay men are predators and you must protect your children not merely from strangers, but from gay men in particular, yes. Is there, there's something about this case that that sheds light on, on that moment and how we got to there?
1: Right, and that's not a new idea at that moment, right? Um, you know, obviously Anita Bryant, yeah, going all yeah, exactly. Anita Bryant had, and I'm not saying that you were suggesting that, but um, no, Anita Bryant was very much kind of uh, trafficking in that sort of myth, uh, the idea that gay men are predisposed to, you know, they need to recruit your children, um, so. That's firmly entrenched, but this is also a moment at which the gay rights movement, um, you know, gays and lesbians are seeking greater visibility and kind of inclusion within the um, body politic. And so, for that reason, you know, this looks, uh, especially not just, I mean, not immediately after the case, although some people, uh, or after the abduction, some people did kind of speculate that perhaps some sort of pedophile. Um, stole uh, or snatched Eton Pates. Uh, That didn't really become uh, a true kind of narrative or a true storyline until a few years later when there was a raid on a NAMBLA cottage or a a cottage that was purportedly affiliated with NAMBLA, North American Man-Boy Love Association, which promoted um, intergenerational relationships. And there's a picture that authorities find that resembles, of a boy resembling Aton, And of course, the picture was not Aton, or it did not depict Aton. It was actually taken several years before Aton was born and it was a non-pornographic photo. But nevertheless, this kind of fueled people's ideas and it kind of activated people's ideas about what really happened. There was kind of, I argue, this suspicion all along. And in fact, investigators had kind of looked for people who might be interested in boys, and they sought to kind of you know, uh, seek them out and, and uh, you know, perhaps kind of implicate them or, or, or prosecute them um, if they could find evidence. But this kind of really confirmed a lot of people's suspicions. And this is something that, of course, you know, Nambler was not implicated in this, but it served to kind of place a strain on the gay and lesbian movement. Um, and, you know, kind of uh, cleave them apart in ways that were kind of already happening. You know, this issue was most certainly um, a a troubling one for a lot of people in the movement. Uh, But it's also something that becomes repeated in subsequent cases. And as I note in the book, the cases that initially elicited or generated a tremendous amount of national attention were focused on boys, on missing boys, in the late 1970s, and really through the mid 1980s, you know it's uh, Aton Pates. It's mostly young black uh, boys in in Atlanta. It's um, the missing paper boys in Iowa, and two boys missing in Nebraska who become kind of connected to those cases. Uh, Kevin Collins in San Francisco, and Jacob Wetterling in Minnesota in 1989. It really isn't until the '90s that cases of girls uh, garner as much attention, um, and there are a variety of reasons for that. And I kind of speculate on some of them, uh, but most certainly, kind of um, the the idea of the the gay predator is central to a lot of these cases, and they become that becomes the presumed motive for these cases, and so it intersects kind of quite neatly with kind of reigning Reagan era. Notions of of uh, gay male kind of predation and criminality and sickness, uh, and for that reason, I think it uh, it's it's one reason why a lot of these cases I think um, receive so much attention.
0: One one of the things that we haven't said explicitly is that Aton Pates was white, mm-hmm. uh, and as you did make reference to, his father was a professional photographer, which I think winds up playing an important part in sort of how how he becomes this this, this image of, of, of threatened white innocence. Um, but as you just made reference to in the, around the same period in Atlanta, we've got a much larger number of young black men who mm-hmm. are disappeared and presumed murdered uh, or in fact murdered. Uh, so what, when, when you look at sort of the, the racial dynamic, right? does what, what does that tell us? How does, how does race flip the The narrative or the 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 ways in which these these stories become public stories, and then how they do or do not translate into policy.
1: Right. I mean, I think the the very notion of kind of victimhood is racialized and it is uh, white. And so Aton Pates was this kind of prototypical, even though he came from a Jewish family, uh, he was, for all intents and purposes, kind of rendered white. And cast as white. And the fact that he was blonde and had blue eyes kind of made him the picture of boyhood innocence, kind of spoke to people's understandings of, or kind of pictures of um, childhood and boyhood specifically. And much the same thing happens, I think, in Iowa with Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. But the Atlanta cases were much different, obviously, because not just of race, but class as well. These were poor, Or working class black boys. There were, I think, one or two girls who were actually kind of included on this list of missing and murdered in Atlanta, but almost all of them were um, male. But they were also in kind of news media dispatches and in political rhetoric and people's general understanding of them. They were kind of criminalized in a way. They were understood... As kind of lost before they were even snatched and slain, and they were most certainly deprived of this kind of individualized innocence that Aton Pates and Johnny Gosh and Kevin Collins and Eugene Wade Martin and Jacob Wetterling that they so kind of readily accessed. And a specific kind of point here uh, is or why they were criminalized was because of this fact that they were kind of, Uh, many of them were out running errands when they were abducted and slain. And of course they were doing that because they were poor and they wanted to garner a little uh, extra cash or bring some home, uh, bring some money home to the family. Um, You know, they were, they were certainly scrappy, but there's a, a way in which in news media dispatches and in broader kind of cultural understandings of these cases, Uh, This serves to kind of indict not just the young uh, boys, but also their families and their communities without kind of recognizing that this is a structural problem, that it's not the fault of these communities that these young people have to go out and uh, make ends meet. They are kind of forced to do so because they live in, in deprivation because of kind of larger systems and processes. So, you know, the same sort of critique doesn't... Get applied to Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin, who were paperboys, who were out delivering papers for money. You know they're not understood as quote street hustlers or street gruncheons or anything like that. Um, so it, it kind of speaks to the way in which race and childhood, or excuse me, race and class, very much um, shape how people understand of childhood, who gets to be a child and who gets to partake in the perquisites of childhood innocence
0: so as, as these events are are occurring in in multiple places around the country we sort of enter into the the Reagan era and uh increasing pressure on the federal government to step in and do something about this this perceived crisis, right, and something we sort of we have we haven't mentioned, we probably should, right. is that yeah, uh, is is that well, you you finish that sentence, you know where I'm going, <laughs> sure. Uh, so, what what a
1: real danger, right, right, right. So um, yeah, and I don't mean to be flippant about this. You know, obviously these are horrendous cases, yeah, uh, but they most certainly don't kind of represent a larger social problem, or they don't speak to an epidemic. You know, there's often this notion, I think there's a term that is being kicked around oftentimes, um, you know, a child kidnapping epidemic or something to that effect. And folks are, because this is a moral panic or a sex panic, uh, as you indicated, folks are kicking around these embellished or largely exaggerated statistics. And, you know, in, in part, they can't be blamed because it's very difficult to kind of obtain actual legitimate statistics for this sort of thing, you know, what constitutes a missing child, for how long does the child have to be missing under what circumstances. But uh, when it comes to stranger kidnappings of children in the United States, something like 100 to 300, maybe 400 at most, um, are snatched by strangers in any given year. So in a country of, you know, now, what, 320 million, that's not a lot um and and of course you're far more likely to be kidnapped or exploited by somebody you know whether it's a parent or an acquaintance and that's not the the sort of understanding the the larger narrative that shapes this panic folks aren't saying this is a parental danger panic although there was some discussion of that in the earlier uh in in the late 70s uh but it it paled in comparison to to what we have here this is most certainly Uh, Exaggerated. It's a panic uh, concerning stranger abductions and stranger danger. Um, It most certainly just didn't. There was a total mismatch between actual numbers and um, the perceived threat. This is this is something that
0: that the Department of Justice recognized, and that they were, as as you document, initially reluctant to to engage, recognizing that that the the problem had been misdiagnosed um but they wound up on on the other side of this and helping to erect the this regime that you talk about can you talk a little bit just sort of about about how that 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 federal architecture of enforcement uh and punishment came came to be
1: right um yeah at least when it comes to just um statistics and when it comes to kind of how the federal government is grappling with this you can understand why the Department of Justice would be reticent to um, engage or intervene because these, at the the kind of fundamentally, are local and and state matters and local authorities. Um, you know, state authorities are probably the best suited to intervene in these sorts of cases if a if a child goes missing. Um, but there is increasing pressure exerted by bereaved parents, by the you know, Missing Children Crusade, if you want to call it that, by the Victims' Rights Movement, to, um, to encourage the, the federal government to, to act. And yes, DOJ officials are very hesitant because they recognize this will represent a strain on their resources. Uh, but nevertheless, I make the argument that this Effective politics of child safety, effective with an A, um, kind of puts them in, uh, backs them into a corner and makes it nearly impossible for them to effectively argue that they are unable to um, engage in this way. And of course, that effective politics of child safety dovetails really neatly with a broader sort of distrust of government, which Reagan, in a kind of bizarre way, is very much uh, shrewd at kind of uh, employing or sort of harnessing, even though obviously he is at the top of the federal government, but, you know he's is, he's is, uh, the, the chief. Uh, so you know there's this kind of uh, interesting sort of dynamic there, but essentially the DOJ is forced to um, actually in, engage in this manner um with the MCA with the missing children's Act in nineteen eighty two. And the uh, MCAA, the Missing Children's Assistance Act in 1984, there is an argument to be made that a lot of this is actually just symbolic and the kind of infrastructure that is, you know, there aren't tremendous federal resources being um, funneled, at least in this moment, toward collecting data about missing children or in recovering missing children, but by kind of at least passing legislation by constructing the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children and funding that in part through the DOJ, the federal government can make a show of kind of protecting kids. Um, And what's really kind of happening, and I get into this in the fifth chapter, is that there is an effort... Um, and the Reagan administration and others are kind of using the missing child moment or the missing child panic in order to exert greater social and institutional control over children and kind of to shore up the ostensibly uh, embattled American family. And they're using the missing child movement to do that. So they're not necessarily funneling these resources toward uh, protect or to, toward um, collecting data and and, uh, recovering these missing children. Um, But they are, in fact, kind of using this to essentially build up uh, the juvenile justice system to make it more punitive, to prevent children from running away from home, running away from um, uh, hostile or abusive family situations. They are very much seeking to reassert parental rights, to roll back the gains of the children's rights movement, Uh, of the
0: the sixties and seventies. So I want to flash forward a little bit and talk about the Clinton years, which, uh, there's now sort of a large literature talking about the, the, the extraordinary ramp up in mass incarceration that occurs under, under Clinton. Um, is it also fair to say that in some ways we see the apotheosis of the, the child welfare regime come into fruition in the Clinton years, or is that overstating the case?
1: um could you clarify so
0: so how do how does how does clinton fit into all of this what is what is how does this regime between reagan and clinton uh wind up sort of being being uh solidified what's its state by the time we get to the 1990s
1: oh uh, yeah so i guess you're saying the the child safety regime um yeah yeah okay sorry yeah cuz i i didn't know if you were referencing welfare reform um, oh, sorry. Did I say child uh, welfare
0: regime? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, oh, no, sorry, yeah sorry, sorry,
1: sorry. No, 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 you're fine. You're fine. Um, sorry about that. Yeah. So I think a lot of the assumptions and kinds of uh, sensibilities that motored Reagan just continued through into the Clinton era um, because, you know, I, I kind of talk a bit about this notion of, well, the idea of family values is obviously very central to the uh, peace or to the book, um, but there's a kind of neoliberal family family values that Clinton himself and, and those kind of surrounding him are supporting and seeking to enshrine or to to kind of um, you know yeah entrench into to law. So there is, I think, a, a great deal of continuity uh, between them. This notion that Clinton is, and this is kind of outside the scope of the study, but I think it's illustrative here that Clinton is going after. Um, you know, so-called deadbeat dads. He is seeking to, with the 1996 welfare reform uh, bill, and I would put reform in square, uh, scare quotes, um, you know, he's seeking to kind of promote family formation and a certain kind of family formation. He's seeking, obviously, to stigmatize certain family uh, forms and certain behaviors. So I think through The very kind of shrewd and cynical deployment of white children and endangered white children or supposedly endangered white children through that kind of um, imagery and that kind of rhetoric, Clinton is also capable or or able to expand the federal machinery of mass incarceration. And this is, I think, very clear with um, the, the Jacob Wetterling Act, which is a key component Uh, per the Clinton administration's admission, um, a key component of the 1994 crime bill. And this essentially, although a few states had already installed or implemented uh, sex offender registries, this mandates it uh, federally or nationwide, I should say, and requires all states to, to maintain such registries. And, you know, the the consequences of this, I think, a lot of people don't grapple with because sex offenders are understood to be kind of pariahs; they're subject to social death. But something like a million people, or, or nearly a million people in the United States, are currently forced to register. So that's, um, you know, and in states like Florida, the the percentage um, is even higher, or I should say, you know, the percent of the population is is even higher. So that is, I think, something that Americans will have to grapple with if. As I maybe suggest in the, the conclusion, if we're beginning to recognize that perhaps this child safety regime and perhaps the regime of mass incarceration have been pushed too far, then you know you have to reckon with the fact that um, the sex offender registration system in large part kind of grows out of this fear over white children being, upon by these kinds of um spectral predators so um and, and just to kind of rattle off a few other cases or um laws that kind of uh flow from this i mean there's the Jacob Wetterling Act in 1994 uh Megan's Law in 1996 and also um Polly Klass who was kidnapped and murdered in California her name is um, and her face is kind of are used to pass the federal three strikes bill um, on obviously on the federal level and in California um, and there are you know other examples kind of extending into the Bush era uh, the Bush two era and in the Obama years and you know one I guess this story began when I entered into grad school as very much. Many stories did at this time. There was this kind of conception within the historiography of the rise of the right that was the prevailing sort of narrative. And you know, as I moved through grad school, as texts like *The New Jim Crow* and work by Heather Ann Thompson um, came out, folks started to pay more attention to the carceral state. And by looking at the carceral state, you are kind of forced to reckon with the fact that this is a bipartisan. Affair, you know, you can't simply say that this is evidence of a conservative ascendancy when both parties are deeply implicated in um, in constructing this. So, you know, there isn't a great deal of differentiation between the Reagan administration, Bush one, Clinton, uh, Bush two, and Obama when it comes to maintaining this sort of child safety regime, or in fact, kind of augmenting it, as I suggest that Obama did. Uh, with the international Megan's Law that he signed in 2016.
0: You're listening to the Public Policy Channel of the New Books Network, and we have been speaking with Paul Renfro, who is the author of Stranger Danger, Family Values, Childhood, and the American Carceral State from Oxford University Press. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Really appreciate it.